0: We've been taking some time to think about um, who we are as a church, trying to discern what God might be leading us to as a group of people. And in doing that, we've turned our attention to several things so far. One, that Jesus doesn't set up an institution but sets up relationships. And that that makes uh, us very diverse and complicated because we don't really have a rule book, per se, to be playing by. And at the heart of that understanding is what's Jesus doing? And how do we join in with that? We've also been invited to look at our own histories of faith, particularly with communities of faith, and to wonder how that's been nurturing and sometimes wounding and how we might be called to be grateful for all of those things and also how we might be called to discern what we're carrying forward from those experiences and what maybe it's time to let go of. How are we called to frame our ongoing relationship with God and one another? And one of the ways that my communities of faith uh, have formed me is around justice. Uh, I grew up Quaker uh, and and assumed, because of that, that uh, integrity and justice and care were inherently part of what it meant to be faithful, to be God's people. Now granted, as a kid, that was more about the refereeing on the soccer field and the basketball court than anywhere else, but it was a given in my house that being God's people meant being about justice. I grew up in a home with a passionate Quaker Old Testament scholar who sometimes seemed like one of those hairy wild-eyed prophets from the Old Testament uh, as I got in trouble for lack of justice. And he was maybe not fully encompassing what it meant to be uh, that kind of person, but he sure was striving to be. And I also grew up with a mom who grew up in Guatemala during the Civil War in the 40s and 50s down there. And so she had a strong sense of call to peace and justice from her personal life and experience that she passed on to us as kids. So when I grew up enough to realize that the rest of the Christian world didn't necessarily take this as seriously as my family did, I was a little bit shocked. It seemed to me that for a community, the church with such a clear biblical mandate to be doing justice and loving mercy that for us to be as inconsistent and varied as our historical record suggests was and is very disconcerting. And it doesn't take much reflection to recognize that the distortion or neglect of our call to be about these things often has a lot to do with power and selfishness. It's not hard to explain why the church has had a questionable batting average. But for a Quaker kid with high ideals, That was pretty discouraging and raised some pretty big questions. And the history of the church is a decidedly mixed bag. We can name folks both in the recent and the distant past who have done a great job of representing what it means to be doing impactful work for justice. Martin Luther King Jr., Bishop Romero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Woolman, Elizabeth Fry, St. Francis, that list could easily go on. And we can just as easily make a list of folks who've done evil and injustice, of regime, regimes who have done so in the name of God. So, although our track record's mixed, the call to justice is not. It was interesting to think about this idea of the church as social justice because when I first thought it, I just blanked. Like, where is the call for this? Where is the. Well, it's, I mean, it's almost the entire Bible. It's a little overwhelming how many places in Scripture that this is the call. We really see it in the very beginning of Scripture with uh, the story of Cain and Abel. If you'll remember uh, the story of Cain and Abel, they, they make sacrifices. God's pleased with Abel's and not with Cain's. And Cain, uh, you know, very reasonably decides he just ought to kill Abel. Um, and God's asks, God asks Cain, sort of facetiously, right? Because God knows, where's Abel? And Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? And God's in, in implied response is, well, yeah, yeah, you are. And this is sort of, I think, in my mind, the beginning of where justice is starts to be, even though it's not directly spoken to that way, this is the beginning of where justice starts to matter in Scripture. We are to care for each other. Justice, in this sense, isn't primarily an institutional understanding or an understanding through a legal frame it's about relationship it's about treating each other well it's about loving and caring for one another and we see this through the rest of the old testament even as israel develops into a people and ends up with a law code the heart of these laws are about relationship and the way that we treat each other and god and as (coughs) excuse me as these laws codify into an eventual kingdom which from its inception struggles with this idea of justice even if we look at just the abuse of power of the kings, of Saul and David and Solomon on down, God's call on Israel remains to be in right relationship. We have these texts from the prophets, just a couple of them. Micah 6, eight, which we've sung this morning in Jeremiah 22.3, both with direct calls to act with justice and righteousness, to work for the poor, to work for those who are oppressed. Prophets say these things in the context of kings not doing what they're supposed to do. That's why the prophets are saying these things on God's behalf. And this continues all the way on to Jesus. Jesus gets right to the point about what this is about. About justice and love. Love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important thing on any list. But there's a second. Love others as well as you love yourself. There's this continuing call To treat each other well. It's interesting because this passage in Matthew is the place that Jesus says directly, this is where the whole law and prophets hang on. And the parallel in Luke is not actually Jesus even saying it. It's it's Jesus having a conversation with a young person who's kind of trying to derail him. And Jesus kind of puts it back on track by saying, what do you understand this to be about? And he says these words. And the guy doesn't really like that much, and so he tries to say, "Well, Jesus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess this up a little, I'm gonna spin this a little more." And he says, "Well, who is my neighbor?" Right? Uh, the message translates it, love others, but love your neighbor as yourself is the more traditional. And this guy tries to, you know, weasel his way around and says, "Well, who really is my neighbor?" And Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan, which most of us remember. This story of um, there's a guy on his on his way on the road, he gets beat up and robbed and a bunch of folks walk by him um, because they're busy doing their own thing. And then the Samaritan, who should be the guy who doesn't help, does help. So this, this is the story. And it's interesting to me that the Good Samaritan story gets kind of leveraged in weird ways. We had somebody a couple weeks ago need some help uh, financially. And they kind of used this as a, well, you should be Good Samaritans. You know, this should be your thing. And I, I, we just helped her. We didn't explain how that really is not an applicable story in that particular case. But it is an interesting story in a couple of ways because the number one thing about this story, and we usually say this story means everybody's your neighbor, right? And this is kind of our conclusion. There's nobody who's excluded from our care for other people, which is a true reading of this story, right? That this is part of what Jesus is saying is that even people who are of a different race or a different religion or completely different uh, category in our minds do not count as a different category. There is no different category, right? But there's a piece of this that we, you know, often as we do with uh, stories we learn in Sunday school that we sort of ignore. Because the Samaritan is not out to be a charitable person. That's not what the, it doesn't say the Samaritan goes around the countryside looking for more people who were beat up. Uh, the Samaritan's not, you know, working with the Roman Empire to find any injustice that's happening. Um, I was telling Colin, you know, the, the great thing about the Good Samaritan is he had this vision for uh, RV clubs, which was amazing. Good, good Sam. Okay, as we said, too obtuse. The thing about the Good Samaritan is the Good Samaritan does good work where the Good Samaritan is. It's what the Good Samaritan encounters that, that he enters into. This is in some sense relational, and that's a little stretch because there's no sense that the Good Samaritan knew the person who'd been beat up and robbed. On the other hand, this is who the Good Samaritan runs into in that moment. And, and the response of the Good Samaritan is to be about love and not about justice in the sense of finding out who beat this guy up, but in the sense of making this guy's life good again, about healing him, about being present to him. Justice and love require giving something of ourselves. We invest in the well-being of our neighbors and the people whom we encounter, and we're called to do that justice within the context of relationship and with who we encounter. So given all this, all the Old Testament background, and many more things that Jesus said. There's no question about our call and compulsion to be a people who are about justice. But there are lots of questions about how we go about fulfilling that call. As we've noticed, Jesus doesn't set up like an institutional paradigm, but relationships. This is not a Jesus justice system, per se. So it means if we're looking for formulaic answers here, we're going to be a little frustrated. It's also worth noting that much of the injustice we encounter is systemic and has deep roots. Whether it's the violence we're seeing in Palestine currently, which is based on centuries of bigotry and colonization, or whether that's racism or patriarchy or political or economic oppression, these are unjust systems. And it's also true as modern folks that we encounter a lot more knowledge of injustice than ever before. We're not only confronted with what's unjust and broken and painful in our communities, but with the horrific news from around the world that we have very little agency to impact. And it's easy to get discouraged or angry when we're faced with what is untenable, what is wrong, what is evil, and yet that we feel helpless to change. And this begins to beg the question, how do we do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly if it feels like we have no means to act? How do we reclaim our agency and ability to bring forth the kingdom? This isn't a full answer, and I honestly don't have a great one in many ways, but perhaps the best the heart of this is to remind ourselves that our agency and ability to be God's people and do the work that God calls us to is based out of relationship with God. It's not that there isn't work and agency that we can do and do have. Our call to work for justice comes directly out of our understanding of who God calls us to be. Just as Colin suggested that living moment by moment in trusting relationship with God is a mostly untried experiment, so too is responding to injustice in listening and waiting on God's direction. And I feel compelled to say I don't use this as an excuse for inaction or disengagement. That's a tried and failed experiment. And that usually results in excusing the injustice and perpetuating the injustice in the world. <clears throat> seems clear to me if God cares about injustice that God will be faithful to lead us to engage with doing justly and loving mercy. There's that third part of that phrase walk humbly with God. It's easy to let our anger and our sense of disenfranchisement distort our listening and our patience Like Peter did in defending Jesus in the garden, it might be easier to attack those who we see as perpetuating injustice. Yet it's Jesus who tells us to love and pray for those who persecute and mistreat us. There seems to be a balance in this, to be willing to take seriously the injustice we see in the world, and to take seriously that God cares about it. If we try to do this work on our own, by our own direction and devices, we can easily become misguided or even forgetful of the faithfulness to God who calls us to this work. This last week I listened to a podcast about the early Polynesian cultures and their voyaging. Maybe some of you have heard about or understand this a little bit. These were folks who created boats with no metal tools uh, that were ocean going. They sailed and settled in islands over 10 million square miles of ocean. They didn't have written language. They didn't have maps. Yet they were, they were able to manage to navigate their way through all this vastness of the Pacific. I learned this week that they didn't have written language but they did have songwriters. And it, got me, it amused me to think about how do you build a boat by somebody singing you through how to do it. But the the ways that these Polynesian folks were able to do this reflects a great deal of skill, clearly, like as far as how to build a boat and how to manage it. But the navigation was the point that really caught my attention. These were folks who were deeply attuned to the environment that they were in. They knew what seabirds nested on land and fished over the ocean, and then went back to land at night, so they knew to follow them if they are looking for a place to land their, their boats. They knew the stars and how to navigate by them, both in the places that they grew up or, or had lived in, but also how to adjust to that. And maybe most impressive to me, they were able to read the currents and waves of the ocean. So they, they had the ability to read what uh, scientists call a reflected wave. So when a, when a wave hits an island or a piece of land, it sends back a wave. And they were able to read that in the water so they could find land from far away just based on the ocean and what they could sense. These were people who could adventure into the unknown because they were attentive to their environment. The specifics of where they were going might be unknown, but their attentiveness equipped them to accurately understand how to respond. And it caused me to wonder not only at our own lack of perception of our natural environment, because if I'm honest I couldn't even name a reflected wave off the other side of the Willamette, but also to wonder at our lack of attentiveness to our spiritual environment. It seems to me that we're often not very good at reading the currents of our spiritual lives, in part because we've accepted that it's okay to compartmentalize our spiritual lives from our real lives. We struggle to be able to adventure into the unknown because we're ill-equipped. We're ill-equipped with the practices and skill to navigate what that means. And when it comes to doing justly and loving mercy, we're, we're ill-equipped to read those things, to know how to respond to how God might be leading us. It's hard not just that we're facing in some ways unprecedented times, although the willingness uh, to dehumanize others for selfish ends is nothing new, It's maybe that we haven't attuned ourselves to be attentive and to trust God's leadership and direction will give us clarity on how to work towards a world of shalom. So for me it raises these questions. What would it mean for us as a community to be attentive and practiced in working for justice? What would it mean for us to be attentive to Jesus' present teaching? How might we bring about new ways of being and what joy might we find in working towards right relationship with each other, with our neighbors or in the world? So friends, let's take some time to listen together. There'll be some queries up on the screen. If they're helpful, use them. If they're not, please ignore them. And if Christ has a word for you this morning for us, please stand and a mic will be brought to you.